Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is about your future. What if the next years of your life can be the best years of your life? When full-time work becomes optional, you'll have the time to do all the things you've always wanted to do. If only you had the time. And soon you will. But to make the most of it, you'll need to be well-prepared. And that goes well beyond your financial planning. Each week, your host, Joe Casey, is inviting you into conversations with his guests to bring you insights, inspiration, and practical ideas to design your new life. A life you'll build around what matters most to you and on your own terms. Let's get started. When you graduate from the world of full-time work, a lot changes. And one of those things is social connectivity. Your work friends are, well, still at work. And you might decide to move to a new community. But many adults have difficulty making new friends. So today we're talking with an expert who can help with just that. Dr. Marissa G. Franco is the New York Times bestselling author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. She's also a professor, speaker, and a psychologist. Her research focuses on the powerful role of our communities in shaping who we are and why we flourish. Marissa uses her expertise to advise clients and companies on how to nurture deeper connections. She believes that connections underlie everything, our health, our motivation, our work, and our sense of who we are. She holds a PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Maryland and works as a professor there. She writes for Psychology Today, and she has been a featured psychologist in the New York Times, on NPR, and on Good Morning America. Dr. Franco, thanks so much for making the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So what are some of the benefits of friendship that people might not expect? Ooh, well, the physical health benefits of human connection are vast. In Platonic, I talk about how, for example, like, exercise, eating healthy, they do increase your longevity, but social connection increases your longevity more than either of those things and significantly more. So I told my coworker, she's like, oh, so I could just be a very social couch potato. And my students are like, we can eat candy and have friends. And I'm like, that's not the takeaway I'm going for, (laughs) but kind of. Why is it harder for adults to make new friends? Yeah. So this is a great question, especially because I know a lot of the folks that listen to your podcast are retired. So making friends is about having a certain type of setting or environment. It is one that Rebecca G. Adams, she's a sociologist. She describes it as having repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. So that's school, right? You see someone every day, you have recess, you have gym, you have lunch, right? For some people that's work, for other people not, because sometimes people go to work and they're not quite vulnerable, which is why One study found that the more time we spend together at work, the less close we feel. And I think in general, as we move forward to adulthood, we just don't inhabit those same types of settings that really foster connection, right? So if we rely on this concept of making friends that we had when we were kids, 
we're just going to be like, it should just happen. Right. And then we don't, we're not realizing we're not in that setting anymore. So it's not going to just happen for you. And in fact, this is a study on older adults that found that people that thought friendship happened based on luck were lonelier five years later. Whereas those that saw it as happening based on effort were less lonely five years later because they made that effort. I miss recess. I'm just realizing. Yeah, recess. right. That was <laughs> good. <laughs> we need work recess. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Good concept to bring back. So I want to ask about two separate things. How can initiating and vulnerability, which you mentioned, be helpful in cultivating friendships? Yeah. So initiating is really key because again, just waiting for people to come to you does not work. Friendship does not happen organically in adulthood. It looks like saying to someone, hey, it's great to meet you. I'd love to stay connected. Could I exchange contact information? Actually following up with them, right? And I think our biggest barrier to this is that we're so afraid of rejection. So I like to tell people about research on something called the liking gap, which finds that when strangers interact, they underestimate how liked they are by the other person. And the more self-critical they are, the more they're like, I'm awkward, I'm weird, the more pronounced this liking gap is. So the, the even more likely they are to underestimate how like they are. So the truth is people are a lot less likely to reject you than you might think they are. But because we have this belief, we're not even putting ourselves out there to find out. And how does vulnerability play into it? Yeah, yeah. So in the book, I describe vulnerability as sharing something that's authentic to you that feels risky or feels exposing or feels like, I don't know, someone could like shame or reject you for. So initiating is certainly one of those things, right? That tends to feel very vulnerable for people. But in general, we find in the research, and this is something I'm going to kind of, a thread that I'm going to pull out is our brain's negativity bias. When we predict the impact of our behaviors, our predictions are inaccurate and they're often more cynical than the truth, right? So I talked about the liking gap as an example of that, but in the research on vulnerability, the example is research on, on something called the beautiful mess effect, that when I picture someone doing something vulnerable, like talking about the flaws in their own body or confessing to someone that they love them, right? And I evaluate it, I see it more positively. But when I think of myself doing that same thing, I view it more negatively. And I think people will view it more negatively. And so there, we have this bias when we think about ourselves, we're like, people aren't gonna like this. They're gonna think I'm weird. But when other people do the exact same thing, we're like, oh my gosh, that's so great. You know, they're so authentic. They're so genuine. They really trust. So sometimes I think it requires us because for me, like the, something that's vulnerable that I struggle with is asking for support from other people. So what I've started to do is literally ask myself, what if this person asked for support from me? How would I read this? And then I try to use my answer to that question to evaluate the impact of how it'll come off if I ask for support. Because I know when the self is involved, our self-defensive mechanisms come into play, our defense mechanisms come into play, and we don't actually perceive the world accurately. So it takes us to take a step back and think of what if someone initiated with me? Like, wouldn't I feel great that someone was like really interested in getting to know me or someone got vulnerable with me and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I feel so close to them. I'm so honored that they were willing to share. And so we can sort of try to use that same process when we evaluate ourselves to get around the defensive hijacking that our brain has when our brain is like basically in survival mode, like protect the self at all costs, not realizing that sometimes that can really harm our relationships. So it's good to get out of our own head, realize that negativity bias and look at it from another perspective, what another person would do. Exactly. And Rick Hansen, he's a psychologist. 
he has this whole framework for what's called taking in the good. Because our brains are so predisposed to focus on the negative, his framework is about savoring the positive. And he says, what is state becomes trait, which is basically the more that you focus on the positive, the more your brain will do so automatically, just like it tends to focus on the negative. So he kind of encourages us to have a positive experience to really pause, savor it until it stirs a feeling in our bodies, and then to picture that positivity melting into our bodies. And what this does is it, it kind of encodes in our brain that like more that positive things are going to happen. And I think we need to continue to do this around social experiences. Like when someone smiles at you, actually receive it or holds the door or nods at you, right? You can receive that. You have to savor that, not just disregard it because that's what's going to help you feel safe enough to connect with other people. Without being too vulnerable myself. Oh, you can go there. Let's let's see how we just heard the research. (laughs) Feel free to be vulnerable. Let me apply it. So let me ask you, why do men find vulnerability difficult? Yeah. So men, unfortunately, face this double-edged sword. I think men's vulnerability, because men are about half as likely to be vulnerable with their friends as women. And part of it is a safety issue. I think a vulnerability issue is a safety issue. So when men are vulnerable, they predict that people are going to judge them more than women might feel or predict, right? Because our norms around masculinity, men are invulnerable, always strong, never weak, right? So there's this assumption of judgment that is heightened for men. The other thing that really ravages men's friendship is something called homo hysteria, which is the fear of being perceived as gay. Now, straight men obviously face that the most, but sometimes even gay men can feel that, especially in their relationships to other straight men. So what that means is that a lot of the times men feel like if I engage in this behavior that can create intimacy in a friendship, people might question or stigmatize me. People might stigmatize me, make assumptions about my sexuality. So sometimes men are like, I'm not even going to reach out to a friend. I'm not even going to ask for dinner for a friend. I'm not going to get too vulnerable, right? Or I'm not going to tell my friend I love them because I'm afraid of how that might people, whether people might make assumptions about my sexuality because of that. And so Throughout history, we've seen that there before homo hysteria really started to be inflamed in the way that it is now, men would, you see pictures of men cuddling with their football teams. You read letters, love letters between men, right? This was all normal. It's not radical. It's quite traditional. I think the ways that we are so disconnected now and assume any form of intimacy has to be sexual is in fact the newer way of looking at friendships. Generosity and authenticity sound like really good things in a friendship, but can there be too much of a good thing? There can. So generosity, right? I kind of in the book, I went back and forth between this idea that, especially I think as women, this feeling that we have to be endlessly generous, right? There's no limit to how generous you can be. And if you're not, you should feel guilty or judge yourself and you're not a good enough friend, right? It's like the sort of martyr syndrome that we put on women. But in fact, when I read into the research, I found that this unmitigated giving is is what it's called in the research. It's linked to poor mental health and less satisfying relationships than people that are generous with boundaries. And other research actually found that when you are being generous to someone out of a sense of obligation, you actually feel worse. And usually generosity makes you feel better. And the person receiving it feels worse too, indicating that they can kind of sense that (laughs) your heart's not really in this. 
and you're kind of resentful, but you're doing it anyway. So, so there's this way that we think endless generosity is a good thing, but that it, if it ends up harming you, it's going to also harm your relationships. Cause if you're bitter about this, you're going to be less able to be in relationship with a person, right? So there's real costs to overextending ourselves. So what I talk about in that chapter is the importance of mutuality, which means I consider your needs and my needs at the same time and figure out what's best for the both of us. So maybe I can drive you to the airport in the morning when I don't have anything to do, but maybe I'm not willing to miss work to try to be able to drive you to the airport, right? Or or maybe if you call me at like 10.30, right as I'm going to sleep to catch up on a TV show, I'm like, I'm tired. But maybe if you're calling me then because you're you're telling me that, you know, your kid's been having really bad mental health issues, then I'm willing to be a little bit more flexible with my boundaries. So, so that is how we can be generous without burning out. We need to consider our own needs while also considering other people's needs. So it's a balancing act. It is such a balancing act. And it also requires us to welcome our friends to set boundaries with us, right? Understanding that if they set boundaries with us, they're going to be able to give more in the long run. And obviously we want our friends to take care of themselves. So I think some people can be, I talk about this in terms of anxiously attached people who always fear people are abandoning them and take tend to take things very personally, right? When someone has to set a boundary or isn't able to support them in the specific way that they would like, they could have such a strong, angry reaction, feel so rejected, you don't care about me, right? But you have to consider the larger circumstance. If your friend isn't willing to help you, even when it doesn't cost them a lot, or if a friend isn't ever willing to help you, right? Certainly you can be upset at them, but if they have something else going on outside of you that explains why they can't show up for you in this moment, it's good that they set that boundary because that means that they're if they're setting boundaries, they're going to be able to invest in the relationship more in the long run. If they're not setting the proper boundaries for themselves, at some point, they're going to want to disengage from the relationship. I talk about this, this equilibrium theory, it's called in the research that when we're focused so much on others, we have a natural desire to start focusing on ourselves. When we're so focused on ourselves, we have this natural desire to start focusing on others, right? So what that means is if someone needs to take a little bit of space from you, let them because they're naturally going to want to come back around at some point when they want to take space. And you're like, no, 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 come back to me, pull me back, right? You're getting them into a deeper state of equilibrium, which is going to cause them to withdraw from you even more. What's the relationship between friendship and empathy? Yeah. This is a good question. So I talk about in the book how our friends really shape who we are. And there's a psychiatrist, Harry Stack Sullivan. He has this theory called the theory of chumships, which is the idea that our friends are the first relationship where we have to practice empathy, right? With our parents, it's like they're going to caretakers. Well, they're given to us. We're not really given to them as kids as much, right? But when it comes to friendship, it's like, you know, this has to be kind of get more give and take. So so that's how we first learn what it means to empathize with another person through our peers, not necessarily through our family. And so Harry Stock Sullivan kind of argues that friendship is the foundation through which you are able to build relationships throughout your life. That's the sort of first playground where you learn what it means to connect to someone, right? And you use that same template in your future friendships and your future romantic relationships as well. And there is some research that finds that people that have friends in their adolescence are have more self-esteem as adults, have more empathy as adults. So there is some empirical evidence behind some of the claims that Stack Sullivan made. Given that you've written this book and all the research that you know so well, I'm wondering if your friends have higher expectations of you as a friend. <laughs> 
I don't know, to be honest. They haven't put it on. Maybe that's part of them being good friends. They're like not putting any sort of pressure on me. And I think they understand that also writing a book makes you really, really busy. And one thing that helps you maintain your friendships is time. So it's like a a double-edged sword. Writing a book on friends makes me understand how to be a good friend, but also makes me so overwhelmed that sometimes it's hard for me to like find the time to be as thoughtful as I'd like to be. But yeah, I think it is like, as I wrote this book, it became a New York Times bestseller, right? And I think about how like connection doesn't form on a hierarchy. So if you think someone's better than you, then you can't connect to them in the same way because it, it disrupts your ability to be authentic. You're just sort of like feeling like you have to idealize them or prove yourself. And if you feel like someone's below you, then you don't quite see them as is fully human in the same way. Cause you're like, I can't get as much out of this relationship with you. Cause you're like less than me. And I think as platonic success, I'm really, really happy about obviously, but I want to just maintain this as the sense for the purposes of connection that like, nobody's better than you. You're not better than anybody because otherwise I think it can really put stress, stress and strain on friendships and relationships. So I came across a new word in your book, new word to me, propiniquity if I'm mm-hmm. pronouncing that correctly. Propinquity. Ah, thanks. What does it mean? It was my, another example of vulnerability. And why does it matter in friendships? Yeah, so there was this study where this researcher looked at police in a police academy and she was trying to analyze like who would become friends, right? Is it, what is it about their personalities, their character, the setting? How can we best predict who's going to be connected to one another? And what she found was that actually the secret was in people's last names. And that's because last names determined who sat where in the classroom. So the people that had last names at a similar point in the alphabet were the most likely to create these connections because they sat next to each other. And so the sort of argument there is that friendship isn't made based on some magic, right? It's who you have propinquity or nearness with, those people that you see repeatedly that you're exposed to the most, those are the people you're most likely to become friends with. So for folks generally retiring, right? The transition to retirement might mean you don't have as much propinquity with people. Like you had propinquity at work. You don't have propinquity if you're, unless you find, and this is one study that looked at what does it look like to successfully transition to retirement? was that you have to learn to replace your connections at work with new connections, right? You have to find a way to find propinquity again, whether that means joining different social groups, hiking clubs, right? Art people take like college courses for non-traditional students, right? You just really have to be intentional, right? You can't just like, I don't know, assume that you're going to get all the same things in terms of connection now that you're retired. You have to recreate that infrastructure for yourself where you have the repeated unplanned interaction and the shared vulnerability in order to connect with people as you transition. You have to put yourself in places where those potential friends might be. Yeah, yeah. In addition to that, I talk about if you want to make friends, join something that's repeated over time. Not just that, don't just go to that networking event, join that professional development group, right? Don't just go to that book lecture, join that book club. The reason being that part of the reason why propinquity works is that we have this unconscious tendency to like people just because they're familiar to us. So in Platonic, I talk about how these researchers had basically planted these women into this psychology lecture 
And at the end of the semester, none of the students in the lecture remembered any of the women, but they liked the woman who showed up for the most lectures 20% more than the woman who didn't show up for any. And that, that really reveals our unconscious tendency to like people simply because they're familiar to us, right? And that's why you want to join something repeated over time. But not only that, what that study tells us is that in the beginning, right, when we first join that group to connect with people, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're not going to trust. It was going to take a transition process because mere exposure effect has not set in. The issue is when we go to that one group, the golf club one day, and we're like, oh, I didn't connect with anyone. I have to drop out, right? And we, we think that it's going to be like that forever. But no, feeling a little awkward or weird is part of the process to connection. The biggest problem we have is when we assume that, oh, because we haven't connected in this initial first time meeting, then we're never going to connect. So I'm curious, how have you applied the research in your own life? Oh, man, so many ways. I, I will tell you, I think this is great example because I had to kind of start my friendships anew after writing this book because I went to Mexico City to on a solo trip. And I was there for 10 days and I knew if I'm here for 10 days and I don't meet anyone, I'm going to be very lonely. But I also knew I can't wait for it to happen organically, right? I think people have this view of someone swept me off my feet and then we became friends or then we got married or whatever. And I know this, this stuff doesn't happen organically. So I was in a coffee shop and I hear another American speaking. I'm thinking transitioners. Transitioners, according to the research, are particularly open to friendship. So transitioners are people that are traveling, people that just retired, people that just got out of relationships, divorced, widow, right? They're, they have this transition in their life. And so I'm, I'm thinking he's American. He's in Mexico city. He's traveling. He's probably going to be open. So we chat. And again, I, I try to remember he's not going to reject me based on the research, less likely to reject me than I think. The other tip I like to share is to assume people like you because on the research, there's a study on something called the acceptance prophecy that finds that when people are told to that they'll be liked, even if this is a lie, they become warmer, friendlier, and more open. So assuming that he likes me, I'm, we're chatting and I end up inviting him to a meetup event that night for learning languages. And he ends up coming at that meetup event. Again, assuming people like me, people are less likely to reject me than I think. We're all transitioners here. I invite another person that I meet to a wrestling match in, in a couple of days, right? I'm joining a Spanish class. So that gives me repeated unplanned interaction. And I end up asking people in the class, do you want to have lunch after class? And people are more than happy to. And I invite them all to my wrestling. We rolled through that wrestling group with like 10 people, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> literally 10 people, right? And it's, I don't know, I share this story because I'm like, it's wild to me being on the other side and now understanding the research when I understand what goes through everyone else's head. And I'm not just in my own head being like, oh, I'm so self-conscious and I don't want people to reject me, right? Knowing that people are a lot less likely to reject me than I think and to assume people like me and that fundamentally we didn't get to this yet, but there's something called the theory of inferred attraction, which is that people like people that they think like them. So if you want to be likable, show that you like people, right? And, and that's, I try to go into these interactions looking for things to like in people I interact with and knowing that, that creates connections. So so anyway, I feel like I left that trip having hung out with, I can't say that they were my friends because it was kind of a short trip, but yeah, having hung out with at least like six or seven new people by using some of the tips that I shared today. Great examples of initiating as well. Yeah, initiating. It's a big one. So what's 
Well, practical action you'd recommend for someone listening who wants new or better friendships? Yeah. So the first sort of strategy that I do recommend, and I think this is helpful for people that are retired, is to reconnect with someone, right? Because according to the research, you already have some trust that's built in that relationship. So it's going to move faster than a new friend. There's also other research that finds, again, negativity bias. But when we reach out to people to reconnect, they tend to view it more positively than we predict. So you might be like, they don't want to hear from me. They're too busy. They've moved on with their lives, right? But the research tells us that they actually, people really like when you send that reconnection text. So just scroll through your phone contacts, find someone who you're like, oh man, I kind of miss them. I wish we didn't fall out of touch. Reach out to them and say like, hey, how have you been? I was just thinking about you, right? And then if it all goes well, ask them to find, to reconnect, ask them to, to get coffee with you. Thank you so much for walking us through some of the key findings to your book. So if you want more tips on the science of connection, you can read Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Outside of that, I share tips on my Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. That's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. And on my website, drmarissagfranco.com, you can access my a free quiz to assess your strengths and weaknesses as a friend or reach out for any speaking engagements related to connection or belonging at work or outside of work. Thanks so much. Thank you. Time for takeaways. Three ideas to consider adding to your to-do list. Number one, assume people will like you. Another great example of a topic we covered recently on the podcast, and that's negativity bias. Be aware of it, but don't let it stop you. Get out of your own head and assume positive intent. Number two, be intentional. I mentioned two great examples of this. First, Look for groups that you're going to get involved in that have repeated events, more opportunities for interaction to get to know people. Makes a lot of sense. Use propinquity to your advantage. And I thought her point about transitioners was interesting. She mentioned that the research shows that transitioners are more open to new friendships than perhaps others. So look for people who are in transition, perhaps like yourself, and use that initiation move that she talked about. And number three, be vulnerable. This can be a hard one. So look for opportunities where you can show up and be vulnerable. It can help you grow new and strengthen existing friendships. Thanks for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. Take a look at our website, retirementwisdom.com. You can take a quick glance at all five seasons of our episodes with great guests like Marissa G. Franco and topics that will help you retire smarter. Just one more thing before you take off. Is it time to design your new life after you graduate from the world of full-time work? Go to retirementwisdom.com and schedule a call today with Joe Casey. Working with an experienced coach like Joe can help you explore new possibilities and gain clarity on your future. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. See you next week. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.